You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Upgraded voting machines may not be as secure or as upgraded as election officials seem to think. Criminals continue to exploit routers in Brazil... A Japanese cryptocurrency exchange shuts down while it investigates a multi-million dollar theft. The Federal Trade Commission finds Facebook $5 billion over privacy issues. Weekend power outages seem not to have been the result of cyber attacks. Another city sustains a ransomware attack. And shop carefully on Amazon Prime Day. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, July 15, 2019. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has announced its determination to upgrade its election security before 2020, and it's spent more than $14 million in funds, mostly contributed to the state by the federal government, to do so. But this upgrade hasn't proceeded happily. The Associated Press reported in an exclusive over the weekend that county election authorities have, for the most part, gone with voting machines running Windows 7, an operating system that will reach its end of life in January. The systems are used, the AP says, quote, to create ballots, program voting machines, tally votes, and report counts, quote. All of this is, as the engineers would delicately put it, suboptimal, and no one is particularly happy about it. U.S. Election Assistance Commission Chair Christy McCormick told the AP using Windows 7 systems, quote, is of concern and it should be of concern, end quote. The largest U.S. voting system vendor, ES&S, say they've got arguably more secure Windows 10-based systems coming soon and that they're working with Microsoft to provide Windows 7 security upgrades until all systems came to be converted to the latest version of the OS. This is not an unfamiliar problem with Internet of Things generally. Vendors modify operating systems in ways that tend to prolong their life beyond the intended limits. There may also be a standards issue here. County election officials tend to take certifications as solid evidence that their systems are secure. But the AP's story goes on to say that Citizens for Better Elections, an advocacy group, says that many county election officials seem to be unaware that many of the systems they intend to use were certified under 2005 standards. In any event, vulnerabilities in systems that count and report votes would open the possibility of direct manipulation of elections, a step beyond the kind of influence operations foreign actors have deployed in the past. 
Avast follows up the trend toward cross-site request forgery attacks against routers with a report on the exploit kits used. The attacks had been noted earlier by Radware and NetLab. Victims continue to be concentrated in Brazil. Coindesk reports that Japanese altcoin exchange Bitpoint has halted all activity while it investigates the theft of some $32 million in cryptocurrency. The exchange noticed there was a problem when it observed anomalous behavior in a hot wallet. The Wall Street Journal reported late Friday that the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has approved a $5 billion settlement in the matter of Facebook privacy missteps in connection with the Cambridge Analytica data scandal. The commission divided along partisan lines in their vote. The three Republicans approved the FTC's proposed settlement, while the two Democrats saw things to dislike in it. The agreement, which now goes to the Department of Justice Civil Division for final review, is expected to include provisions for closer privacy oversight of the social network, but those details weren't immediately available. It's thought the partisan divide may have been over the character of the oversight measures. As heavy a burden as $5 billion may be, congressional critics of the fine point to Facebook's very high revenues, which were, the Washington Post notes, $15 billion for the last quarter alone. Facebook had expected a heavy fine, and in that same quarterly report said that it had put aside funds to cover that eventuality. Another way of looking at the matter is in terms of profit per employee. At Facebook, that's over 634000 per employee per year, a record for the tech sector, according to Silicon Valley Business Journal. Nonetheless, it's hard to regard $5 billion as chump change, even around Menlo Park. The settlement easily sets a record for penalties imposed for violating an FTC order. The previous record was a $22.5 million fine against Google in 2012, which in relative terms is chicken feed. The FTC has greater latitude in punishing repeat offenders, and were Facebook not a privacy recidivist, it might have gotten off easier. On the other hand, a number of observers, including some members of Congress, think the penalty amounts to a slap on the wrist. An opinion piece in The Verge agrees, arguing that Facebook has behaved badly since its foundation and that it has consistently escaped accountability for such missteps as those on display in the Cambridge Analytica affair. The GAO recently published a report, Federal Agencies Need to Strengthen Online Identity Verification Processes, urging federal agencies to up their game when it comes to user authentication. Patrick Cox is founder of Trust ID, a company that specializes in call authentication. The traditional way, I say traditional, meaning maybe the last uh, 10 or 15 years, the way authentication has worked in these channels is primarily asking questions, right? We all know the drill. What's your mother's maiden name? What's your date of birth? What's your social security number? Things like that. And, um, and that's broken. That's really what led us here today is that that information is just totally broken. And so what are the alternatives then? Well, three ways to authenticate somebody. One, obviously, is asking questions, and that's called knowledge-based identity uh, proofing. The second one would be ownership. So you think about a credit card, a physical, unique device, right? That would be ownership authentication, having a device, a key, for example, a key to a safety deposit box would be an ownership token. And the final one is what we'd call inherent, something you inherently are. So a a fingerprint, uh, a retinal scan, you know, a DNA, things like that would indicate who you are. Those are the only three tools we have in the uh, in the authentication arsenal. So 
questioning, you know, is really easy to understand why you do that, especially over a phone call, because it's hard to, if not impossible, to get a fingerprint or something over a phone call, right? So it becomes more challenging. I know one of the concerns here is that if you move to a digital method, if you, you do something that you know requires something like a mobile device, well, not everybody has a mobile device. Absolutely true. And so what we've what we've been advocating for, in fact, we do this millions and millions of times each day for some of the largest financial institutions in the country, is relying far less on the asking of questions, right? The knowledge information, that whole approach, frankly, is broken because criminals know your date of birth, right? It's on social media. It's been shared. The sad news with all the data breaches and hacks and so on out there, they, they have your social security number. They have your address. They have your mortgage payment information, the information has been shared with the bad guys. And so what we advocate for is using more uh, ownership authentication. So if you're calling from a mobile phone, as you say, Dave, it's pretty, pretty common sense to say, hey, we can make sure that mobile phone is unique. It's not duplicated. It's actually engaged in the interaction. It's in that person's possession because they've obviously used some sort of probably inherent method, right? They've used a facial scan or a fingerprint or a passcode to get access to that phone. That's great. And then also it's nice though on a phone call, even if it's a landline, you can do the same thing for landline phones. Yes, which is great, right? Now now you've got basically a hundred percent coverage because if the person is able to call in, then they can identity proof with that ownership token. The phone itself doesn't have to just be mobile, it can be landline as well. And is that like something as simple as a callback system where they're calling you so they know the number they're calling or or I guess using some sort of caller ID to, to verify the number you're calling from? Yeah, so you'd use the caller ID information, which is great. However, you probably heard of a thing called spoofing where criminals and others can, uh, yeah. yeah, they can fake your phone number. So if you can solve for the spoofing problem, and there's technology today that does that, and also if you can solve for what we call the virtualization problem, and there's technology that solves that. When I say virtualization, think about calls from uh, Skype or Google Voice, right? It's not really a physical device. It's not really a physical location. It's more of a virtual uh, login, username, and password. You can deal with that technology and be able to identity-proof these calls if you can solve for the spoofing and virtualization problems. And again, as I said, there's, there's really proven technology out there to do those things. That's Patrick Cox from Trust ID. Deutsche Welle reports that an unprecedented power failure yesterday affecting Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay remains under investigation. But Argentina's energy ministry says a cyber attack is not among the main alternatives being considered. MSNBC quotes New York City's Mayor de Blasio saying the city is as certain as we can be that Manhattan's weekend blackout was not caused by a cyber attack. Power has been largely restored in both instances. Official announcements concerning grid failures now routinely address the possibility of cyber attack. The Syracuse City School District in central New York State has confirmed that a cyber incident it sustained last week was in fact a ransomware attack. This is the most recent in a string of ransomware attacks against local governments and their services. Syracuse schools haven't yet brought their systems back online. The town of New Bedford, Massachusetts also sustained a recent cyber attack, but the city is keeping quiet about the details, acting, it says, on the advice of the security consultants it's hired to help with recovery. And it's Amazon Prime Day, as you may have noticed. Even if you haven't noticed, the grifters, scammers, the hoods all have. Amazon Prime is being used as fish bait all over the place.
so shop carefully. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's good to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, Joe, we have been following this story about Apple and Zoom, the (laughs) conferencing software, and how uh, Zoom had installed a web server on Macs, and if you uninstalled the Zoom app, uh, this web server would stay behind. Correct. Uh, to Zoom says to facilitate uh, easier reinstallation right. of the uh, of the app. Right. Well, the the vulnerability actually stems from a uh, problem with uh, this ease of use feature, if you mm-hmm. want to call it that, uh, that Zoom is, was insisting on. Now has since backtracked from it. But the idea that when I click the link. I just get it. Just works. Zoom just comes up, and I'm teleconferenced in. Right. right? And the right. link, the the person who administers the Zoom conference can turn my camera on and my microphone on, so that presumably I don't have to sit there going, uh, "How do I get my audio connections right. to work?" Just like I did this past Tuesday in a WebEx meeting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, well, that happened to yeah, me. I, yes, I, um, they are there. Yes, I had to. I had to type in the chat and say, uh, "Hold on, let me set my audio settings right." right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, we've yeah, all been through that for right, sure. Exactly. And Zoom is Zoom is from a, from a user perspective saying, "Well, that's too much. Let's just do this." Uh, well, that is also too much, apparently. But mm-hmm. really what's interesting is that in this is that the Apple version of the software contained a web server on your machine that even after you uninstalled Zoom, when you clicked on another link, this web server would help and reinstall the software again, and it was seamless. Mm-hmm. So the, the user didn't see it getting installed. Apple then this week, late this week, has pushed out a an update that 
goes in, a silent update that goes in and removes this server from your machine. Right, right. Now, right. Uh, this I find interesting as well. There's uh, a, a person on Twitter, his name is uh, Eric Capuano, and uh, I, I think he captured uh, he captured this in this tweet. He said, uh, Infosec Twitter, how dare you silently install a vulnerable web server on my system? Also, Infosec Twitter, how dare you silently remove a vulnerable web server from my system? <laughs> right. Everyone else. I guess there was a bad thing that could turn on my camera, but it's gone now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, but what do you make of this? Uh, this uh, some people pushing back on Apple's capability to silently alter your computer. Right. For, to for uninstall they, software. Uninstall software from mm -hmm. what they say are for security reasons, and and in this case, that is absolutely true. Correct. What do you make of people getting spun up about that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I tend to think that when you buy an Apple device, you're going into the Apple ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? And part of that ecosystem is they have a security culture, and they have the idea that the user is not really in control of their computer experience. To the they degree are. they are on other with other with right. other OSs, right? This is yeah. this is the main reason I don't like Apple mm -hmm. as as a as a guy who comes from a technical background. I enjoy using a Windows machine or, or Linux machines, right? Um, I don't want the the Apple experience. I don't want them telling me what to do. So if you don't want Apple behaving this way, don't buy an Apple, right? Right. Um, but the vast majority of people, just like just like this tweet says, are have the attitude that, hey, there was something bad and Apple took care of it. Yeah, we're right? good here. We're good. We're done. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think that what really prompted Apple to do this was the fact that Zoom's web server didn't uninstall as part of the app uninstall. Mm -hmm. That's probably in violation of the developer agreement. I would imagine so. I, I don't know yes. that it is. I'm, I'm not an app developer for Apple. And, and yeah, it makes sense that it would. Yeah. It's just it's bad form, if nothing else, to right. leave behind a, a web server running after your, your user has requested that your software be uninstalled. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I, it, there's an article uh, Zach Whitaker uh, wrote over on TechCrunch, and uh, part of it includes uh, a quote from a spokesperson from Zoom who said, We're happy to have worked with Apple on testing this update. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'm just guessing what that conversation was like. Everybody's all grins like. over there, right? <laughs> right. I'm just, thinking, I'm just imagining Apple saying to, again, speculating here, but thinking that Apple's saying, okay, so here's what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> and, and Zoom saying, okay, you're right. Yep, okay, yeah, very yep, good. Yep, yep, We're, yep, good. Yep, you, We're good. We're good. We have a lot of computers that we want to have access to. So right. Yep, okay. Right, right. I mean, yeah. this this is, like I said, this is why you buy an Apple. You know, yeah. it's, it's because of the security posture and because a lot of this, a lot of this maintenance, which would you'd have to do yourself on other operating systems is handled handled by Apple themselves. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting uh, kerfuffle and, and certainly, uh, I mean, it's a security uh, event as well. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, as always, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
minutes, the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.